Well, we're at the uh, final part of our Mark Part 1 series today, and we've covered a lot of ground over the last couple of months, haven't we? Looking at who Jesus is. And we looked at that question just that was asked by the disciple Peter just a couple of weeks ago. Who do we say that he is? And Peter's response to Christ. And in looking at who Jesus is, then how do we respond to him? What does following him actually look like for us? And we're taking a look at the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10 today. But this is going to be an unapologetically simple message, looking at a very particular part of those chapters. Because I'm a simple man, so this is going to be a simple message. But I feel that we need to be reminded of this truth. And chapters 11 to 16, they're going to deal with the final week of Jesus' life. And we're going to do a Mark Part 2 series in the build-up to Easter 2019. So let's recap a little bit. Just eight chapters that we've covered so far. They've been full on action. They've been hurtling from one event to to another. It's been constantly moving. It's actually, Mark is a great gospel account to recommend to those who don't, have never read the Bible before, who don't know Jesus. Mark doesn't hang about. He doesn't waffle on. I hope I can learn a little bit from Mark there. He just goes for it. Bang. Straight at us. It moves so fast at times that your head starts to spin. Like, Jesus, slow down a little bit. There's been a lot of action. There's been confrontation with religious leaders. He's exposed people's wrong views, including his own earthly families. He's been rejected by the people of his own hometown. We've seen lots of miracles. Lepers have been healed. A paralyzed man, a, a man with a withered hand, a blind man, a deaf man. My head's starting to spin as we even mentioned those. The feeding of the 5,000. And the feeding of the 4,000 in a complete wilderness. Jesus has walked on water. He's calmed the storms and he's cast out demons. It's a fast-paced account. And all the miracles and the events that we've seen point into who this Jesus is. And in chapters 9 and 10, Mark paints us a picture of what following Jesus really looks like. And how we're to follow him. And James last week so helpfully we talked about the, the mountaintop experiences in the valleys. We've talked about it. We've sung about that this morning. And his disciples struggled to see. And we can laugh at them and we can point our fingers at them. How can they not get this? They're with Jesus. But we can struggle too. Because we're not as dissimilar as we might like to think that we are. And we've got the big picture too. They didn't. And sometimes we can make following Jesus really complicated. There's all these things to do. There's all these plates that we've got to spin. But it's really not as complicated as we might, like, we might think. And in chapter 10, Jesus paints a picture of what a follower of Jesus should be like. And it's not necessarily what we expect. This is what I want to simply focus on today. We need to keep being reminded of it. Childlikeness. Not childish, but childlikeness. Let me just read in chapter 9, verses 33. To 37. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, Jesus, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. That's the disciples. It's quite telling, isn't it? They kept silent. Obviously not any good what they were discussing. For on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. 
Jesus turns things on their heads. He's, it's upside down. It looks nothing like what the disciples expected. Because they were arguing about who the greatest is. Who looks the best, has done the best. What actions and works they've done can reel off to one another that proves their worth and place next to Jesus. Which of us is the worthiest? Ranking one another. And we do it too. I pray the longest, Jesus. I lead the most groups. I've helped the most people. And Jesus calls this child who's done nothing right into the middle of them. Right into the middle of all of them. Right into his loving arms. Right into his acceptance. See, we have to look at this through the disciples' eyes for a moment. Because this was hugely challenging to them. We don't quite get that today in our culture. The culture that they were in, in children held a very lowly place in society. In the ancient world as a whole, <clears throat> excuse me, aside from the normal family affections, children weren't rated highly. They had no status or prestige. And the disciples would have scoffed at this scene. It would have been foreign to their thinking. A Roman father, for instance, a bit of history here, was literally so powerful that in law he could put to death members of his own family for disobedience. Not just send them to the naughty step for five minutes. It would have seen being very odd for a Roman father to publicly be cuddling his children. And he wouldn't be following them around, making sure that they were okay. None of this helicopter parenting style back then. To a wealthy Greek dad, <clears throat> it was acceptable, even encouraged, to send his sons off to be groomed by older men. What would we call that now? Children had a low place in society. It was all about the, the adults, the ones who can make a contribution. Because adults are independent and able to do it themselves. And children are dependent and needy. And Jesus turns their thinking upside down. And the lesson resonates down through the centuries. He shows it's not about us being the first or the greatest. Or about being the top dog or the most successful. Not about being independent of not needing anyone else, self-sufficient, self-reliant. And this is what the disciples were thinking, and it can creep into our thinking too. Because we can move past the childlike bit, and we can get proud, and we want it to be about something that we've done. We can get older in our thinking, if you like. And cultures in every age have thought that. Ours does. When you meet someone new, they often ask you, what do you do? And... We want to say something good. Maybe we want to embellish it a little bit to just to bump our status up. It's far harder for me, by the way, these days to say what I do and describe what I do than when I was a firefighter. It was a lot easier. And sometimes I'm feeling the pressure to prove something more than I did. Just a slight aside, I had this conversation with someone just the other day and she worked for the ambulance service and we were chatting to, them, uh, to each other about shift work and all that sort of stuff. And this other guy just sort of bumped into the conversation, stuck his head in and caught the ambulance service fire brigade bit. And he said to me, oh, you're a fireman. And he was smiling, he understood. And I said, no, actually, well, I've left the brigade. And he said, well, what do you do now? And I said, trying to think on my feet about the best way of describing it. I said, well, I'm a pastor at a local church. And he sort of did his double take, looked at me a little bit trying to compute it and said... You make pasta. You're a chef. So, no, I don't make pasta. Just about do scrambled eggs. I explained in more detail to him, and I could see how much he was regretting joining this conversation with me. Like, oh, mate, I just need to make a quick phone call. He didn't even have a phone. So, the disciples were acting proud here. They wanted to be seen as better. 
Not just some lowly child with no real contribution, fairly insignificant. And Matthew uh, 18, chapter 18, verse 4, is the parallel verse to this one here. He makes it clearer by amplifying it. It says, whoever humbles himself like this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the lesson of humility is plain. It's not only the law of Christian service, it's also the law of entrance into the kingdom of heaven for all of us. This humility, which is the basic law of the kingdom of God, demands a complete reversal of our previous scales of values. A reversal which one day God will vindicate. It says in Mark 10, 31, we'll come to it, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Following Jesus looks totally different. And he says it again because this is something that needs teaching. Listen, chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Jesus makes this another cryptic statement about children. And he says to the disciples, if you're going to know me, you must be spiritually childlike. Not childish, but childlike. There's a huge difference. The disciples, they struggle to see this. And we see this here. We see that a little bit later on because the disciples, James and John, they sort of had this conversation and they start making this sort of power grab. So again in 10, chapter 10, 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What a way to start. What a way to come to Jesus. Do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left glory Jesus you know we're the best right we just want the top two places on your team that's what they're saying and Jesus goes on he says and Jesus called them to him in verse 42 called them to him and said to them you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Here they are, James and John, with their request. Thinking in the ways of men and women. And Jesus exposes it. And again, we can raise our eyebrows at them here. But they're doing, what they're doing is coming to Jesus and asking him to do exactly what they want. To let them look better than the others. To improve their status. They're demanding. It's all about them. And we think, how can these guys keep missing it? But what we should be thinking is, what are we missing right now? Letting it challenge our thinking. Notice how gracious Jesus is with them. He doesn't slam them for these questions. He asks them further questions to draw them out because they couldn't see. They couldn't understand that the thing that they were asking didn't look like what they expected. They were thinking, in your glory means when you're seated at your throne. 
So kind of like they would be in his cabinet, important cabinet ministers to, to a prime minister, or to a king, the top places. But what was Jesus' moment of greatest glory? Where does Jesus most show forth the glory of God's love and justice? It's on the cross. It's on the cross. He's turning it upside down. And Jesus is at the actual moment of his greatest glory. There will be somebody on his left and somebody on his right. But there will be the criminals that were being crucified with him. So Jesus is saying to these guys, you have no idea what you're asking. No idea. So in order to clarify his teaching, Jesus tells them again about his death. And actually this is the third time here. and It's not what was expected. To give his life. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we can so often overcomplicate the Christian life. But the reality is what we really need is a consistent and continual reminder of the essential nature of the Christian life. A reminder of the gospel and a reminder of how we respond to the gospel to be childlike. And how we continue on in it in a childlike way. Let's just have a look at these verses backwards. So firstly, what did Jesus come to do? 1045, verse uh, first 45, to give his life. To be really clear here, he means be killed. His whole life was heading to the cross. And in just a few weeks, we're going to be celebrating his birth, the Christmas time. But he was born to die. We all die, but we're born to live and, and then die, hopefully uh, as a consequence of old age. But Jesus was born to die. He knew it. He intentionally laid down his life. Jesus predicted his death three times in just three chapters. He knew his death was not incidental to his mission. It was absolutely central to both his identity and his purpose on earth. This is very different from other religious leaders. The founders of all other world religions were born, outlived their enemies and died at ripe old ages. You can read their accounts in the eyes of the world. They were successful. And it's why we still remember them or know about them. Think of Moses, who lived to an old age. I mean, he didn't even start his ministry until he was 80, which is pretty impressive. Overcoming lots of enemies along the way. Buddha died at the age of 80 with his followers all around him. And Muhammad was the same. Their purpose was to live and to be an example. An example in their lives. And these guys outlived their enemies and died in old age. And therefore their religions were successful. But what did Jesus come to do? He came to die for us. He lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way and yet without sin. He came as the second Adam and said no to sin in the wilderness in our place. Doing what we could not do. Not as an example that we can go and follow independently. Jesus is showing us that it's not about what we can do to earn it, like everyone else teaches, but it's about what he came to do in our place. We're a needy people. He came to fulfill the law and die. Lots of people have tried to establish religions and died young and failed. That's why we don't remember them now. And if we do remember them, it's only because their deaths were recent-ish and fairly dramatic or tragic. You might remember... A Waco siege led by David Koresh in 93. There was a 51-day standoff between this cult, the branch, Davidans, and the federal agents. And Koresh claimed to be a Christ-like figure and had a following for a while. 
and the siege ended in fire and tragedy. As 75 people died, including 25 kids, and Koresh himself. And events like that are remembered for a while, but not really David Koresh's teaching. No real Messiah would die young, right? Because that would be failure. You don't hear about those failures. Those religions don't succeed or survive. And Jesus did three years of ministry and died. And yet here we are, some 2,000 years later, with well over 2 billion followers worldwide and still advancing. It might not look like that in Europe at the moment, but there is huge gospel advance happening in China. There are tens of thousands of people coming to know Christ in South America, in Colombia. There's revival going on in other parts of the world. So Jesus would appear to be an exception to the rule. And why? Because common sense says that the story should have or could not have continued this far. And yet it has. Praise God. The answer lies in what happened to Jesus' disciples. The disciples overcame their common sense. Because common sense would have been that Jesus is dead. It's all over. We go. But something happened to this bunch of very ordinary people. This ragtag bunch, the disciples. Something that turned the cross, the place of death, into a source of joy and power. Not just an example to strive for, something that changed everything. And in this verse, verse 45, Jesus tells us not only that he will die, but why he'll die. And that's the key. Understanding not that he died, but why he died. And when you move, in from, move from your understanding from the what to the why, things really change. So why did Jesus come to die? Well, in verse 45, again, it sums up the answer. It says, as a ransom for many. The word ransom, it's a bit of a funny word at times. It gives us these images of kidnappers and ransom notes and exchanges with, like, no police involved. You know, the notes cut out of newspaper letters. Who knows Melinda here? Good number? So this joke will work. It's okay. (laughs) Melinda, um, she used to keep, she works in the church office, but she used to keep a couple of goldfish in the church office. And one day, as a little joke, we decided to kidnap a fish. I mean, really funny. We know how to laugh. I think Joe was definitely involved. So I'm just going to point my finger over there. I just want to say a full disclaimer. No fish were hurt in the kidnapping. Okay, we were very careful with them. We transferred them to another bowl with, full of water and food. And then we emptied the original bowl and we sat down chuckling to ourselves as we cut little, little words out of the newspaper and we stuck a note in this empty goldfish bowl. If you ever want to see your fish again, we need donuts. <laughs> of course, there's no trace of anyone's handwriting, but I think the sniggering and the laughing coming probably mostly from Joe gave us away. And she was not amused, I've just got to say. No donuts ever appeared, and the goldfish were safely returned to their home. So the image of ransom is a familiar one for us. And in biblical days, it was a familiar image too, but probably for slightly different reasons, because I don't think they were so bothered about goldfish then. Ransom was the price that you paid to liberate a slave or a prisoner of war. And when two nations went to war, one of three things happened, and two of them weren't particularly good. One, you died, whether you, your side won or you lost. Two, you, you won and you took the surviving opposite fighters captive. Or three, if you lost but survived, then you got taken captive. And that really wasn't very good for you. There was a, a punishment for losing. It was terrible, grinding slavery. An enormous ransom was paid to the, to the losing side to get its slaves or its prisoners of war back. To set a person free like this was known as redemption. 
And Jesus, in saying that his life is ransom for many, is describing the action of setting us free by redeeming us. Because we're stuck as slaves, spiritually speaking. We're locked up in guilt and shame and fear and ultimately death. And here the word ransom comes from this Greek word that meant to buy the freedom of a slave or a prisoner. And the ransom would, ransomer would make a huge sacrificial payment that matched the value or paid the debt of the slave in order to purchase his or her freedom. And Jesus came to pay that kind of ransom. He's dealing with a price that we could never pay. Punishment for the sin that separates us from the holy, pure, internal God forever. The wages of sin are death. Jesus is very serious about sin and its consequences. It's not blasé. He says, no, it's deadly. It infects and destroys everything. And it separates us from God, who's the source of life. And it enslaves us and it condemns us. And Jesus is serious about sin and its, cons- its consequences. And he talks of a place called hell in chapter 9, verses 42. He says, this is where your sin is sending you. A place of total separation from God, from all that's holy, all that's good. And it's better for you, he says, to cut off your feet and tear out your eyes if they lead you to sin than go to hell with it all. But we can't work off our sin. We can't change our hearts. And he had to do it, to do the work in our place and be forsaken and punished for us. Redemption. It shows the, the lengths to which God himself goes to bring us out of, thing, out of those things and into the life that he would have us to live. In one sense, redemption is sort of difficult to grasp, but in another, it's really rather not. Redemption is, is actually quite straightforward and simple and yet deeply profound at the same time. We use the, the language of redemption often today. In football, this is slightly ironic because I'm not much of a footballer, but a goalkeeper can redeem himself. If he comes out a little bit too far, the striker gets in behind, kicks the ball in, shoots the goal, and whoa, moan. And then a little bit later on, he saves a couple of cracking goals. And we say he's totally redeemed himself. Or staying with that football theme, think of Gareth Southgate, who recently managed the England World Team in the World Cup. The guy with a waistcoat, if uh, you don't care much for football. Until this year, he was remembered for missing a penalty 22 years ago. That got England kicked out of the Euro 96 tournament. And it sadly haunted him for all these years. It's a mistake. Well, the Guardian newspaper ran a headline during the recent World Cup that after a successful match, and it said this. It said, Gareth Southgate savers moment of redemption after 22 years of her. And it had this wonderful picture of joy and celebration on his face. There was a sort of a freedom from this past mistake. It was a lovely picture. I loved it. My heart went out to him for it. That's what Jesus does for us, but so much greater. We've made a huge mistake. One that's cost us totally. One that has separated us from the God who made us. We've no way of paying up. And Jesus redeems us. He buys us out of the mess that we're in with his life. Thank you, Lord. Or stand on that theme of the, uh, using the word redeem. We can redeem vouchers. 
And Tesco vouchers, for instance. We used to do our shopping from Tesco's and we saved up enough vouchers to buy this little tablet, this huddle thing. We had to redeem the vouchers online. It's really satisfying to go and collect something in exchange for these, these vouchers. For what felt like free, for free. Sure it wasn't. But there's even a website called Woucher where the whole idea is that you get a code for an item and then you redeem the code and you collect it online. That's what God does for us in redemption. He redeems us by giving something in exchange for us. He says, he's my son, Jesus. And because you're valuable to me, I'm going to give him in exchange for you. Christ has set us free. There's a transaction, an exchange that takes place that sets people free. And the key biblical picture for us of redemption in the, in the, in the Exodus, it's in the Exodus in the Old Testament. In the Exodus, the Jewish people who are in slavery in Egypt, they're liberated from slavery by God. They've been slaves for 400 years. In increasing workloads, increasing lack of freedom in their lives. And God says to them, if you kill a lamb and you eat it for dinner and you smear its blood on the doorposts, then when I send my angel to come and judge the Egyptians for their oppression of you, you'll be set free because of the blood on your door. And after 400 years, four centuries, generation after generation enslaved, a whole people group knowing nothing but slavery, it became their way of life. It's all they knew. They're freed. Free. And in the same way, Jesus comes to us and he says, if you put your trust in me, your childlike trust, if you have the blood of the Lamb of God over your doorpost, then you will be freed when I come around to judge. You'll come out of slavery and into freedom. You'll have the promises of God. All of this inheritance that I want to give you because you've been bought out of slavery by the blood of a slain lamb. God himself has gone and said, there is something that I want. It's of such value to me. And it's you, to us. You that I want to redeem. And I want to give something in exchange for you. God says that you're that valuable to me. I'm going to give my son in exchange for you. You've been redeemed. You've been bought at a great price. Everything has changed. We're now accepted by God. Total acceptance. You'll know these verses, John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The only way that Jesus could redeem us was to give his life willingly as a sacrifice, as a ransom. Jesus didn't have to die despite God's love. He had to die because of God's love. It was costly. All life-changing love is costly. If you try to love someone who's got needs, most of us, someone who's in trouble, it's going to cost you. You can't love them without taking a bit of a hit yourself. Somehow the the problems and the troubles transfer. And it can be exhausting and costly to us. It's the same thing with parenting. To parent, we must sacrifice for our children. We can't just continue to do whatever we like, spend all our money on ourselves, come in from work, put our feet up, leave them to it, let the screens parent them. No, we have to come in and we have to deal with the issues. We have to budget our money to provide for our family. We have to take the time again and again (laughs) to model and discipline and to train them. Parenting is costly. God could say in creation, let there be light, and there was light. But he couldn't say let there be forgiveness, because that's not the way true forgiveness works. It's costly. 
all real life-changing love is sacrificial. Love that really changes things and redeems things is always a sacrifice. C.S. Lewis wrote the, in his classic The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and I heard this again with a tear in my eye. So I watched this with my kids. It said, when a willing victim, Jesus, who had committed no treachery, sin, was killed in a traitor's stead, as us, the stone table, as the curse of sin, would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. What an exchange. How do we connect with this? How do we become like a child? Well, Jesus' work equals for us total acceptance with God. We must receive it in a childlike way. And Jesus' work is complete, and we need to depend on it daily like a child. Let me just read verses 13 to 16 again. And they were bringing children, I've read this, but I'm going to read it again, to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. He took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is a, it's a metaphor. It's telling us not to become uh, spiritually childish, but to be spiritually childlike. Children characterize the required attitude of the disciple at the start and all the way through. And we get older and move on. We shouldn't. How do we become like children? Let's just think about how children behave. And there's two main things. There's loads of other things, but there's two main things I want to just draw out. Acceptance. Children expect to be accepted. Do you feel accepted? My youngest daughter, she's five. She's utterly confident that she's accepted by us in our family. She's super confident. She's not timid. She's not reserved. She's not held back at all in the acceptance that she has. She's childlike in this because it's a deep down truth that she believes. And she charges about, sticking her little shoulders out, diving into everything at any point and any time of the day or night. It's going on and out. She's got no self-doubt. She knows she's loved and she's valued to us. And when she doubts that, I love her, because I've got to correct something that she's done wrong. When she tries to hide her face from me, she's actually acting in a childish way. She's insecure about my love. She's doubting the commitment I have to her. And in Jesus, we're truly accepted, totally accepted by God. It's childlike to believe that. And children, children are dependent. They're totally dependent. I mean, the younger they are, the more dependent, obviously. But young children are entirely dependent on parents for everything. They can't do everything themselves. A simple illustration of this is when my kids struggle to do their buttons up on the world before they go to school. And they're struggling on and on and they're getting more and more frustrated. And the childish way of dealing with it is to resist my attempts to help them. So I can do it all. And they get more and more frustrated as they struggle on and tears and tantrums follow. The childlike way of dealing with that is just to come and ask me. So even with these fat fingers, just to help, no matter what I'm doing, help me, Daddy. And I will. I love to help them. I'm ready for it. The total trust in the parent's ability is the center of a child's existence. And Jesus is saying, you have to feel helpless, totally in need. Do you feel your need of him today? He says, come and give your burdens to me. Stop struggling on and on with them. He's ready to help us. 
He loves us and he accepts us. A few years ago, God spoke to me very clearly. And I felt him say that he was going to teach me dependence, purpose and pace. And at the time, I was seeking him for some real clear purpose in my life. My pace was off because I generally go at all things, go at things, all guns blazing. But I didn't really understand the dependence bit. So I thought, well, that's all right. I'm dependent. But actually, that's an area I find really hard for me. I so quickly find myself being independent and self-sufficient, self-reliant, just living and doing things in my own strength and trying to do it all myself. I don't know why I keep trying because I get it wrong so often, but I do. And you notice how throughout Mark, religious leaders, the self-assured, the independent, they've attacked Jesus and he's left them to it. And yet those who know their need, they're physically ill, they're lost, they're broken, they're helplessly needing him, they've burst through to Jesus with self-abandoning or childlike trust and he's healed them and he's loved them. We cannot get ourselves free. We try. But if we could, we would have. To be childlike is to totally rely on what God has done for us in everything and every day. And the cross shows that we are valued at our worst. Some of these verses were read out in our worship. But Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for us, for the ungodly. And it goes on in verse 8. It says, Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God says, I've seen you at your worst. And yet, at that very moment, look at how much you mean to me. The cross has won for us a wonderful acceptance with God. We can come boldly into his presence now, just like my daughter bowling around, shoulders out. There's no separation. Hebrews 4 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And nothing can ever separate us because it's Jesus' work and not ours. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we have too high a view of ourselves, we're not spiritually childlike because we need him. His grace, his Holy Spirit, his peace, his love. But equally, if we have too low a view of the love of Jesus, we're not spiritually childlike. Because you're not, we've not seen our value to God, that he loves and accepts us in Jesus, and he calls us children of God. John 1 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And we need to see the meaning, the depth, and the beauty of the ransom. So to respond Maybe perhaps you don't know Jesus and you thought it was all about earning a place with him. And he wants to reveal to you who he is. For God so loved the world. He gave his only son. There's a simplicity to the gospel. It's not complicated. Jesus is the answer. And there's an invitation to come and meet Jesus. Some of us need to know again now total acceptance with him. That we're loved and we're completely accepted by your father. And that there's no divide in Christ now. That God wants to return to us the joy of our salvation as we reflect on what he's done. And to be childlike again, full of confidence in him, bustling in and enjoying him, not just doing things for him. I feel he wants to give us some boldness in this confidence, restore joy in this truth and, and walk with him as a father, just like a, with a child in daily relationship. Maybe it's been a while. 
for him saying, come back to it, right into his loving arms, accepted. And just like children, to be totally dependent on him. He wants to remove some of the lies of self-sufficiency and self-reliance from us. And to once again realise our need for him in every part of our lives. And for his Holy Spirit to be being filled. Be being filled. That's daily. From opening our eyes to the simplicity of relationship with him. Not to be afraid of our weaknesses. But to realise we are weak. But in him we're strong. And if you're full of worries, to come again as a child and give them to him. And let him carry them for you. Your burdens. 